Good evening. Uh, welcome to this economics department lecture. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Claudia Golden to you. Claudia is a professor at Harvard University. She is a labor economist and an economic historian. A labor economist, for those of you who don't know, is a person who likes to look at data and learn about little uh, nitty-gritty empirical facts about the world. Uh, an economic historian is a person who studies anything about the economy before 1963. Why 1963? Well, that's at least the date if you're looking at the American labor market, because from 1963, we have lots of data on individuals from the current population survey um, that lots of labor economists work with. But if you want to know anything about earlier periods, it becomes much harder, and you have to find your own data. Um, Claudia has actually spent a lot of her career on doing exactly that, um, doing the hard work of uh, finding data about how the, the US labor market has worked. Um, now, even with your best effort, uh, if you're an economic historian, the data are typically not as good as the modern ones, so you often have to interpolate and um, get a bigger picture of things. And certainly Claudia is a person who has a big picture view of the world. I guess uh, looking at more than just the past 10 or 20 years of what's go gone on in the world also helps with uh, developing a, a broader perspective. Now I'm sure Claudia will bring both these aspects, the big picture view of the world and the um, careful empirical study of uh, relevant data to the topic of her talk this evening. Um, this evening's lecture is uh, at the intersection of two of the topics that Claudia has worked on um, for most of her career, the role of women in the labor market and uh, the rise of education. So today she'll talk about um, the uh, career family conundrum so uh, how highly educated women combine, combine work and family life. Um, and before you start, I should note that uh, my colleague Alan Manning was actually going to chair the lecture this evening. But unfortunately, Alan couldn't come because he had to go home um, because his wife is tied up at work. I'm sure Alan would have loved to hear the lecture. No, I, I actually told Alan that he was going home not because his wife was tied up, but because he's a parent. <laughs> so I think um, the way we're going to do this, uh, Claudia's going to speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll throw it open for questions from you. Um, and we'll have to be finished by, by 8 o'clock. So please, Claudia. OK, thanks very much. Ask college seniors what their life goals are, and you'll find that the men talk a lot about career and the women talk a lot about family. But ask again in a few years, and you'll find that both speak of the twin goals of career and family. Even though college graduates are certainly better off than most, they'd better be, <laughs> or else we're all wrong. Uh, they are concerned a lot about the various challenges that they are going to face having it all. So my topic today is the career family conundrum, 
uh, the quest for career and family among the college educated. And this is the New York Stock Exchange with children in it. I will address the relationship between demands in the labor market for workplace flexibility and the response by occupations, professions, firms, and institutions. First, I would like to make an, an admission, and that is that the data that I have assembled are for uh, the United States. Here it is. Um, they apply somewhat to data that I know of from Canada. And in many instances, the British experience is similar, uh, although it is much delayed in what I'm going to be talking about because of considerably lower college enrollments, particularly for women, in the distant past, not today. Now, the increase of women in various professions and I will say in the United States, but that's the last time I'm going to say in the United States. Uh, since 1970 has been spectacular, and these are data for four major professions, and this is uh, for uh, first-year professional students, the fraction female. But why do highly educated women enter some professions and fields more so than others? I'm going to be talking uh, later in my talk about some data from the University of Chicago Booth School, which is their graduate school of business. Women are 25% of all recent MBAs from uh, the Booth School. But in that group, just 8% of them work in the field of venture capital, 15% work in investment banking, and 71% work in human resources. The fraction female among young MDs, and those are under 35 years old, uh, recently is 41%. Uh, it's about the same in, in, uh, in Britain. It's a little bit lower, but about the same. But the fraction in some specialties, and I will give about 30 specialties, these are the ones that are above the mean or around the mean, where the mean here, as I said, is 41%. For the, that's for the red bar, which is physicians under 35. The blue bar is the fraction female in each of these specialties among all physicians. The fraction in specialties such as public health, OBGYN, pediatrics, dermatology, psychiatry, and immunology, among others, is far higher. Now, it is far lower, these are the lower ones, in the surgical specialties and in cardiology. Now, to anticipate why these differences exist, consider the following. A recent survey by the American Academy of Pediatrics reveals that 36% of all female pediatricians now work part-time, which is under 35 hours a week. And that's up from 28% in the year 2000. So in just six years, it went up eight percentage points. And similar trends are recorded for male pediatricians as well. It went up from 4% to about 8%. By the way, in these uh, graphs, that these histograms that I just gave you, one nice part about looking at um, physicians under 35 and then looking at the blue bar for all is you could see some fields where there was spectacular growth 
because you just compare the two bars. And some fields in which there wasn't that much growth, so a lot of growth you can see here, less in pediatrics where it was always high. And you can see here that in some fields in which women were actually a fairly large percent relative, uh, such as in radiology and um, all the radiology fields and anesthesiology, it hasn't changed much. But you can see that in the surgical specialties, it's either it stayed pretty low, although it's increased a bit. For example, urology has increased. That's not a surgical specialty, but but the colon and and, and uh, rectal, rectal surgery, which is this one over here, has increased quite a bit. And uh, one of the reasons for that is a technological advance and an increase in the demand for colonoscopies, which are scheduled procedures. So you sort of get the picture in terms of a bit about why women choose certain specialties than others. The other thing I want to note here is that the fraction female across these specialties ranges from almost 80% down to about 4%, which spans just about almost all the occupations that you can imagine. So it's really spanning quite a bit, even though these are all physicians. Now, uh, another medical specialty is one that deals with all species except for humans, and that's veterinarians. So women are 77% today of all newly minted veterinarians. That figure exceeds the number for OBGYNs, in fact. They were a trivial fraction of veterinarians 30-something years ago. Women today are about two-thirds of all young pharmacists. I noted the British data are pretty similar in that regard. Uh, women uh, are also 60% of new optometrists, even though, as you can see, optometry was a true male bastion about 30 years ago. So what accounts for this sorting? And there are many different reasons, and I'm going to emphasize aspects of workplace flexibility and also something having to do with ownership that in many of these fields um, self-employment has plummeted in pharmacy for example it has declined enormously in veterinary medicine it's declined in just about all these fields in for physicians it's declined a lot okay now in some cases occupational decisions are governed by preferences that have nothing to do with hours and workloads and whether or not you want to own your own business and take on that added risk and also get uh, the returns from it. For example, women are, if I look around in a room where I'm teaching at Harvard, women are labor economists more than they are macroeconomists. And as far as I can tell, work conditions in both of these fields are equal unless there's something I don't know about. Now, in other cases, the decision is largely governed by a desire to combine career and family and involves a trade-off between earnings and aspects of the job, such as work flexibility over the day or the week or the year. Now, the model I'm going to invoke and the model I want you to keep in the back of your head particularly if you're a labor economist, 
is that of compensating differentials. It's a model that goes back to Adam Smith. Now, individuals receive wages, and that's on the uh, vertical axis, and they also receive disamenities, and the disamenity here is job inflexibility, or correspondingly, the amenity is job flexibility. Now, some individuals, let's consider indifference curves here for a particular individual, and because the, I have the disamenity on the axis, I get the indifference curve sloping up. Some individuals require large payments for the disamenity, or equivalently are willing to take low wages to receive the amenity. You can think of this as what I'm talking about, or working conditions, uh, how nice a place is, how discussing the air is, etc. Okay, whereas other individuals, here's another person's indifference curves, are less concerned about these amenities or disamenities, this is relatively flat here, and they're not willing to uh, give up much to uh, get the amenity, and they're not willing to, um, that you don't have to pay them much more to work with the disamenity. Now at the same time, we also have a range of firms, and there are firms or professions that find it uh, less or more costly uh, to get rid of the disamenity or provide the amenity. And these are these curves that I drew here are the zero profit, the zero isoprofit curves, okay, for each of the two firms. So what happens is that workers sort among the various firms and we get an equilibrium, the set of tangencies. And you can see that if the firms find it less difficult, less costly to provide this, the tangency is going to be flatter, okay? So in this case here, what happens is that the workers that, you know, want to get rid of this disamenity are accepting earnings uh, per unit time that are less. They're essentially, um, we can say it's possible that they're even being penalized, okay? But they're, they're paying to get rid of this. Now, the goal of career and family for college women is a relatively new one historically. There was a time when college women didn't have much of a choice, and the word career, when applied to married women, had extremely negative connotations. To say that a woman was a career woman meant that she was a bad person, okay? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide college graduate women, and I emphasize that all the data I'm going to present here are for women who completed four years of college, got a BA or a BS, and I'm going to divide them into five birth cohorts, five groups of years. Now the divisions that I'm going to make are not at all arbitrary. It's not as if I took this period of time and I divided it up into five neat ways. But in fact, they come directly from the data. That I'm not going to show. You'll just have to trust that they are going and look at some other work. Now cohort one, remember there are five cohorts. Cohort one graduated in the two decades before World War I. And this group 
had either family or career. They rarely had both. And you can see here that the non-marriage rate is pretty high. It's more than 30%. Only 50% had a child by the time the group was 40 years old. Now the next generation, cohort two, graduated from the end of World War I of, to the end of World War II, and it's a transition cohort. It married at a higher rate. It had more children than the previous cohort, but still had relatively low labor force participation rates when it was married. This group often had a job for a short while and then gave that up, often had aspirations for career, and gave that up for family. So this is, in historically, this would have been sort of the new woman of the 1920s. Now, cohort three, which Betty Friedan wrote a lot about, graduated from the end of World War II to the mid-1960s, and they were mothers of what we in the US call the great baby boom. They married early, and you can see non-marriage rates for college graduate women of about 8% by age 50 is extremely low number. They married early, and they had lots of kids. A no-child rate of 17% is also very low. And they had jobs that could be re-entered after their children were grown. This group attained what I think of as family. They put family first and foremost, and then they had job. So it's only with cohort four graduating from the late 60s to around 1980 that large numbers of college women entered occupations that had substantial educational requirements and had the potential for major internal advancement, which we would call a career. This cohort aimed for career first. After all, it could look back to the previous cohort and say, having family is easy as apple pie. You know, they're multiplying like rabbits, but they don't have career. To have career, you really have to start in that career and stick with it. We'll do that, and then we'll have the family later. So they achieved much in terms of career, but they had very low rates of childbearing. In fact, 28% of all college graduate women, not from elite colleges, but all college graduate women in this cohort did not have a first birth by age 40. And that which is put off is often not achieved. And this was an iconic postcard. This, wasn't, this was a poster as well, but it was also a postcard that people mailed each other uh, in, this, in this period. Now, subsequent cohorts have grappled with what cohort four did wrong. After all, they did something wrong if they were aiming for career than family. And then they discovered, they were the first cohort to discover the biological clock, okay? So the next cohort said, well, we're gonna do it right. The most recent one that can be tracked has had more children per college graduate women and it has achieved more in terms of career. Its stated goal is career and family, 
And it's really that issue, how do you have that, that I'm going to address. And the summary of the past hundred years is given here, starting with the cohort having family or career, job then family, family then job, career then family, and then the latest cohort wanting both. Now, for a woman to achieve career and family requires lots of conditions. In particular, that there are some professions and occupations and firms that offer some workplace flexibility, and also that don't penalize it a lot. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, we'll offer you workplace flexibility. You could take job interruptions but you're not going to get that promotion and you're not going to get tenure and you're not going to make partner. Okay, so to understand how highly educated women manage to have both career and family requires a lot of data that typically do not exist in the usual run-of-the-mill data sets that we have. And the reason is that to study only college-educated women and to study women who are entering these professions requires a very large data set that would have lots of these women. Most of the national longitudinal surveys, for example, you just won't get out of 5,000 women, you're not going to get that many who have finished their BAs and gone on. Now, to study this, together with other researchers, I've assembled data on Harvard College students from classes beginning in the late 1960s to the early 1990s and have also done similar surveys and studies on University of Chicago Booth School MBAs from 1990 to 2006. And I'm going to begin with the Harvard data and we call that the Harvard and Beyond data. And these data come from several sources. We begin with administrative data that we got from Harvard. And part of this was because the then president of Harvard really wanted to know about how women were doing at Harvard, and his name is Larry Summers, okay? <laughs> and yet he was tarred and feathered for just the opposite, okay? Now, we start out with an administrative the administrative data, we add to that a survey, and we add to that some information from reunion records, and we're still working on these data. So the Harvard and Beyond data cover three cohorts, as I say, graduating circa 1970, 80, and 90, and the data that I'm going to present right now are mainly anchored at 15 years after graduation from Harvard. Now, the women in these classes were truly extraordinary, but in fact their marriage rates echo broader trends among all college women. So the women who graduated around 1970 in fact echo a little bit of cohort three, the tail end of cohort three, they marry early, about 36 percent marry within two years of graduation. That's still um, lower than it is in the nation as a whole in that year. Despite their early marriages, they delayed childbearing. The same fraction had children 15 years out as occurred for later cohorts. 
Although 15 years out, around 62% had a child or an adoption of a young child across all three cohorts, about 76% did by the time they were in their 50s, thus 24% did not, meaning that women who start late uh, do catch up a bit. Okay. And you can see what these graphs give you is the percent with a child at various moments in time, beginning with when they graduated from Harvard, and the horizontal line going across, the black line going across, is when we measure them at 15 years out. So they're all about the same, and you can see how they actually increase uh, the fraction with kids after we uh, observe them at 15 years out. And we know that because we know their full birth history. Now, if I limited this to just MDs, and that's what this line is, you can see that MDs actually have physician, women who are physicians, have even more kids, and it's a fact to which I will soon return. Okay, the majority of Harvard and beyond women went to professional and graduate schools. This is a truly extraordinary group. An astounding 18% in the 1970 class received a medical degree, and that was 45 times the fraction for the average female BA. 17% earned a law degree, and that's about 17 times that for the average female BA. In total, about 60 to 65% earned a professional degree or a PhD. Similar data for men in these classes display the same demographic trends and also show what I should have pointed to here. Uh, for women, you can see a rise, the third line here, percent completing business school triples from 1970 class to 1980. And you can see here as well a very large increase in the fraction who are uh, complete business school. So that was a huge increase in the 80s uh, in terms of uh, the nation as a whole going to business school. By most definitions of career, the Harvard and beyond women have done exceptionally well. There are really no surprises here. Although most of the Harvard and beyond women were in the labor force uh, 15 years out, there were differences by advanced degree. The MDs had the highest participation rates, and that is standard in almost all data sets I've seen. I read a piece about British physicians and female physicians, and it holds there as well. And the MBAs have the lowest participation rates. In addition, although labor force participation rates are high for all, just 60% worked full-time, full year, 15 years after receiving their BA. Putting all this together means that 30% in this group had children and worked full-time, full year, 15 years out. And about 53% were in the labor force and had children 15 years out. 
These are the groups that we could call the having it all crowd. And males, by the way, are at the 65% mark for both, as you can see in the companion part of the diagram. Okay. Now, major differences for women in the having it all group exist by advanced degree. Physicians are the most able to combine family and career. That's what you would expect from what I just said. Followed by the PhDs, the JDs next, then the MAs, and then the MBAs. The big differences among the groups for both the labor force and the full-time, full-year measure concern work rather than family, although there are differences for family. So they have their families. Some appear to find it easier to combine the two. Some find it harder, and those, therefore, disproportionately leave. In some, the Harvard and beyond women achieve much in terms of career, but significant differences exist across professions and occupations. The MBAs have the lowest labor force participation rates, the lowest share working full-time, full year. They take the largest amount of time off, and they have the second to the lowest fraction with kids. The PhDs have the lowest fraction, by the way. At 15 years out, among those who have kids, 23% of the MBAs were not working in the labor force at all, compared with only 3% of the MDs, 14% of the lawyers, and 10% of the PhDs. And the penalty for time off that we've measured varies enormously by profession. So using a standardized unit of one-tenth of the years since receiving their PhD for the amount of time off, the MDs, if they took that amount off, would lose 16 log points, or let's say about 16% of their income for taking that time off. And some of that could be because there's depreciation of human capital. Some of it is that you didn't get that promotion or you didn't try hard enough because you had other things. The MBAs forfeit a hefty 53 log points, or somewhere in the range of 70%. And the JDs and the PhDs lose about 40%. So there's a big range in terms of the hit you take when you take time off across these various professions. Now I'm going to use the rest of my time to focus on the MBAs because they appear to have the most trouble attaining career and family. And I'm going to compare the trade-off in their careers to those of veterinarians. And you might say, well, why veterinarians? Well, why not veterinarians? Well, for one, as we saw, veterinarians have had the most extreme increase in fraction female of just about any major profession you can think of. And the second reason is that I'm very fortunate that the American Veterinary Medical Association, which is the AMA's version for veterinarians, gave me access to a survey that they did. So I have data on 4,000 veterinarians. and. In our Harvard and Beyond survey, we have two. <laughs> so, so 
So I have a lot of veterinarians to tell you about. Okay. Now first, the Chicago MBA sample. The University of Chicago MBA sample includes those who received their MBAs up to 16 years out. So we start in 1990 and we go up to 2006. It contains thick retrospective information on all jobs that lasted more than six months and the data are assembled into an individual year panel which yields approximately 18,000 individual year observations. The MBAs in this sample worked really long hours per week. They were generally not just well paid, they were ridiculously well paid, okay? So one thing you have to remember is that these are University of Chicago MBAs and they tend to go more into uh, investment banking and the finance fields than most other MBAs do. Okay, so these are the filthy rich. Okay. Um, now, uh, part-time work, from what we can see, was heavily penalized where it did exist and it doesn't exist in many places. And as we just said, as was time off, from the labor force. Now differences in income between men and women in this sample are considerable, but much of the, this difference can be explained by differences in hours and in job interruptions. Even though female MBAs didn't really work very short hours or take a tremendous amount of time off, it appears that any deviation from the norm involved heavy penalties. Exit from the labor force, recall what I just said from the Harvard and Beyond data, was highest for the MBAs than it was for other professions. The fraction not working, so this is just a little bit of information from the data set. So the fraction not working, and the blue line is the female and the red line is the male, the fraction not working in the current year rises with time since degree. About 17% are out of the labor force at 10 to 16 years for women. Years not working at 10 to 16 years for women is about one year on average, that's everybody not conditional on ever taking time out. Mean weekly hours for those working falls with time since MBA. And although by most standards, MBA women work long hours, they are considerably shorter than those for men. The share working full time, full year falls with time uh, and at 10 to 16 years, just as we saw in the Harvard and Beyond data, about 60% work full-time, full year. And that number would be 50% uh, for those with children. Almost half of MBA, and this is a better way of seeing it, that 60% for the whole group are working uh, full-time, about 50% that's the middle one, those with kids. And women without kids, interesting for the MBAs, it's actually under 80%. So even with MBA women without kids 
a working less than um, I think it's it may be less than the MDs I would have to look at it with kids prowling on the thing to note here is the fact that if you look at all women about 62 percent are working full-time almost an equal fraction well if we look at the women with kids for example an equal fraction of the remaining group are either not in the labor force or working part-time it was a big to-do in the US press about the opt-out revolution which was way overstated and you can see that even with these MBAs the fraction who were quote opting out was actually equal to the fraction who were working part-time but what's interesting here is that about half of those who work part-time are employing themselves okay so self-employment here allows women to work part-time okay now Earnings differences, as I said before, between the female and the male MBAs are enormous, but they're largely explained by differences in hours and job experience. And this graph gives the coefficient on a dummy variable for female for each year since MBA. And so this is essentially in log points. You can think of it as percents, although it would be larger in percents than these log points are. So this is correcting for nothing at all. It's just telling you every year since their MBA, the difference in these earnings begins to fan out. This is a very well-known um, aspect of, of earnings in these uh, occupations. Okay. And what we do is we first add pre-MBA characteristics such as whether they took finance courses, how well they did on their GMAT, and we closed the gap somewhat. We next add hours and job experience, and the gap closes by a considerable amount. This is what I meant by we're explaining the difference between uh, men and women's uh, earnings. And finally, we add job setting, for example, whether the person works in the nonprofit or the for-profit sector, how many um, other, how large the firm is. And the regressions clearly show that even the apparently small differences between male and female MBA hours and job experiences are very costly for women. On the one hand, we're explaining these differences. On the other hand, we're saying that small differences in these individuals reg with regard to what we might think of as productivity enhancing characteristics have large costs. So in some, the MBA lure for women is large, incomes are substantial, even though they're lower than those of their male peers. Some women with children find the inflexibility of work and the penalties that they pay insurmountable, and they leave or they employ themselves. Now, if women are fleeing the corporate and the financial sectors, they have been flocking to professions in the health field, and particularly that of veterinary medicine. The fraction female among current veterinarians, uh, here you can see, plummets with age and thus rises across the past 35 years from about 8% to almost 80%. And 
might say, well, why has this happened? Nothing has changed with regard to animals. They're still cute. And so, and you know, women are caring, they're still caring individuals. Well, the demands of professional training haven't changed, but the practice setting has. Small animal clinics open from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m six days a week with no evening and no emergency hours have proliferated. Take it from me, I had a dog, and if you have an animal and it has an emergency at seven o'clock at night, you have to go to a regional hospital. In addition, the equity stake that women have in their practice is far less than men. So the bars here give the fraction of veterinarians in each of the age groups that have any equity stake at all in their practice, and you can see that there are big differences, and the squiggly lines give, mapped onto the right-hand axis, give the amount of equity conditional on having some equity. You multiply it together, and women have between a quarter and a third of the equity stake that men have. And as I said before, all these data come from this great survey that I was allowed to, to get. Now, being a veterinarian has prestige, sort of equivalent to that of being a physician. Like some physicians, there is considerable room for part-time and flexible work. And the training period is less than that for doctors, since I can see in my sample, veterinarians generally do not do residencies, they are not board certified. After about five years practice, mean total hours for women are about 45. I have it here by age for men and women. Uh, and, and for uh, men, they're about eight hours more. And the fraction working 35 hours uh, is in uh, or part-time rises to about the 20% range. What's interesting about these graphs, and admittedly I have only cross-section data, and these are not cohort data, but if this is any guide, it means that you become a veterinarian, you work high hours, then you work low hours, and you stay that way for the rest of your, your life. Uh, now, what I'm going to do now, and then end, is compare the veterinarians with the MBAs, and thus I'm going to run a horse race, okay? Now, um, what it reveals is that the veterinarians work lower hours than the University of Chicago MBAs. They engage in more part-time work sooner in their professional lives. And all of these features suggest two employments with very different amounts of work flexibility. And the vets win the horse race but they lose the rat race. The veterinarians earn considerably lower income than, of course, I mean, we all earn, earn lower income than University of Chicago MBAs. <laughs> um, so it would be nice if I compared them to regular MBAs, which is a little harder to do. The veterinarians, uh, interestingly, get not that much more for working longer hours and in consequence, they incur about half the penalty than do the MBAs from working part-time. So in sum, 
The path to having it all for college graduate women has been long and is still unfolding. Only with cohorts born since around 1950 and graduating college in the early 1970s could many college graduate women have even contemplated, considered for a second the goal of career and family. Some professions today appear to offer greater work flexibility and women have disproportionately entered them. Earlier I invoked the Adam Smith Sherwin Rosen model of compensating differentials as a way of thinking about this and thinking about the fact that particularly in a field like pharmacy, uh, the sector that I have here in red probably changed its penalty because it became a very different place. It was no longer the independent owner-operator in uh, pharmacy. Everyone's an employee now. Okay, so it's this the for us it's the CVS, the Rite Aid, the Walgreens, whatever. I'll end with some speculation about what accounts for differences in the costs of providing work flexibility. Much comes from this production relationship. For example, supply-side factors have changed how eyeglasses are sold and optometrists are hired. So uh, Costco, Walmart, they now hire optometrists. They're not self-employed, they're employees. Similarly, these factors altered the industrial organization, as I said, of pharmacies and the way pharmacists are hired. Demand-side forces also largely changed the veterinary business as small animals with doting and rich guardians increased in numbers. There are many questions for future work. Why is it that an 80-hour-a-week litigator is worth more than two 40-hour-a-week litigators? But at the same time, why is it that an obstetrician in a group practice is a perfect substitute for any other during an actual birth? Are births less important than trials? Could a critical mass of women shift a business model as Deloitte and Ernst and & Young in their, um, in their corporate culture having to do with CPAs have claimed many times in print and yet will not give me the data? Why are there non-linearities and non-convexities in the underlying production relationships in some professions and yet not in others? And I would enjoy hearing your answers. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Claudia. Um, I'll let you run. Sure. Questions and answers. Question. Yeah. I'm sorry, that I didn't hear what you said. Women who don't what? Just under 20% of the women were not working despite right. having graduated. Did you look at them at all? That's, that's a, a good question. Some of them, they were not working at that moment. 
And what we would like to do next is go back because what I thought was very wrong about these papers on the opt-out revolution, it was as if they left and never returned. I did look um, and in, in uh, a piece that is in the AER, which is my Ely lecture, there is a very nice presentation of the distribution of time spent out. And the surprising thing there for both a sample called the College and Beyond sample and the Harvard and Beyond sample is that, in fact, they weren't staying out for very long. Okay. So that's the most, so if someone is out, the most important thing we can ask of the person is, what are they doing the next year? Okay. And the answer that we find is that they're not out. The tail of the distribution is really very, very small in terms of being out for five years or ten years in this particular sample. Thanks. Yeah. It's like the Netherlands. Yeah. Well, I, I advise that for the answer to that, that you look at the many papers that have been put out by uh, in the Netherlands because they have had that for quite some time. So that they were concerned. And they sh they're probably still concerned if the OECD data that I looked at are correct, which they probably are, uh, that, um, that women's labor force participation rates in the Netherlands were very low. Okay, And so this was many years ago. And they decided that they would figure out a way of getting them up. Because after all, a good Dutch woman is home to make lunch, a very big lunch, for her children. And that is quite incompatible with doing much else, OK? So, so, so what they had was, was a, a policy in which you could go to your employer and say, I would like to work. Um, and, and there was a way in which you sort of scaled down the amount that you wanted to work. And what, what they found, and, and they're still, you know, the data are still being compiled, is that what you want to know is, does this, does this then lead to an increase of women in the labor force working part-time for a short time, or an increase of women in the labor force who are permanent part-time workers? So you have then created, you've taken mummies, and you've made them into mummy trackers, okay? And the papers that, that we got two years ago uh, I think uh, we're discouraging in answering it in the latter way. Yeah. In the back. Yes. The ROI on the female talent, especially looking at the MBAs, looks terrible for our economy, for our educational institutions. And are you optimistic? now that we have many more women coming through the labor force and getting great educations, and that there's more research transparency now on the price paid, as well as that, that we have more government open-mindedness, and hopefully it's just not mommies who think about part-time, but it's daddies too. Or are you cautious, given uh, you know, a lot of the societal pressures that remain that you know, to be a good mother, you still need to work part-time? 
So, you know, by and large, it's it's the MBAs in in for in the Harvard and Beyond sample, for example, and all the samples that I've seen that are the biggest dropouts. Now, here's a piece that I didn't tell you here because it's part of a longer paper which is on my website that I that Larry, Larry and I and Maryam Bertrand have written that most of the action that's going on in terms of changes in labor force participation rates most of that action after a first birth is coming from women who have husbands who make a lot of money okay very little action, if anything, is coming from the women whose husbands, so we divided the sample into two groups, okay, who are making less. We, when I was trying to think of how I describe these groups, you know, in most cases you would say the lower earnings and the higher earnings, but these are all very high earnings, so you know, it was hard to, so it's just below some median and above some median, okay? And it's hard to know exactly where to take that, whether it, therefore, it's an income effect or whether it's a culture effect, but that's where most of the action is coming from. Let me just say one other thing to you, that when my Harvard senior women and I sit down before they graduate and I ask them what they're going to be doing and almost all you know college students now go off into the real world for a while why I don't know but they do and then and so they go off when I graduated you never saw the real world you just stayed in the university or you went and got professional education somewhere and then you went out so they go out in the real world and and uh, and I'm asking them what they're going to do next. And they, many of them say, many of them, because they're econ majors, are going to go into, particularly before the, the crisis, are going to go into finance. And they're all excited about it. And I say, and then one, they say, well, then we'll have kids. And, we'll, and, I, and I say, well, how are you going to put it together? And it seems as if um, until they go out into the real world and see what's going on, they haven't figured out just how difficult that's going to be and put pressure and figure out which firms to go to. Yeah. yeah. Well, we haven't studied the Harvard MPAs. They're, Right, but the, the people we're studying are not in that group, okay? The people we're, it, that isn't to say that there aren't some, okay? And, and of course you can always hire a nanny who's smarter than you are. Uh, but the people we're studying by and large are, um, they're not in the group that we're going to feel that there's any policy, any policy concerning childcare would be the most regressive I could ever imagine, okay? In fact, when I, I, got, I got a call from the BBC the other day asking if they could have an interview with me, 
And I said, well, sure, you know, I'll be around. And then they asked me some questions, and one of them was, and, and uh, the interview is not going to occur, you'll see why. One of them was, um, so tell me, what types of hardship do you, the, the people in your surveys face? And I said, hardship, hardship? <laughs> These people don't have much hardship. So I, I don't think that that's as relevant uh, here as it would be in, in the, for the multitudes, yeah. Hello. Um, I'm wondering if you were able to look at uh, the effect of the intention to have children going into, if that if that's something that the survey provided for at all, um, and and whether there, it's possible to see right. an effect on um, on the dropout rates. If people know that they want to have children, are they less likely to end up having that be a surprise that then results in them not using their MBA degree, for instance? Right. So the surveys that we're doing, because they're retrospective, uh, it would be, there would be too much self-serving bias to say how many children did you expect to have, okay? The NLSY and other surveys do ask very young women and then continue to ask them, how many children uh, have you had? How many would you like to have in the future? And you could see that it's not surprising that these uh, sort of converge in the sense that, you know, if you're 35 years old and you had said when you were 20 that you wanted four kids, you changed your mind, okay? Uh, but those samples are s small enough that we couldn't do uh, what you're asking for, which is, you know, if, if people, I'm sure that it, it's been done in some in some gross way. If if, if people enter uh, the workforce and say, "I want to have you know five kids," they're going to pick a very different route than someone who comes in and says, "I want to have one or two. Yeah. But our surveys uh, don't have that. Couldn't. We we do have an open-ended question, which is you know. How, uh, how have things developed in your life that are different from what you had expected when you entered Harvard? And the answers to those are really quite amazing, okay? People wrote and wrote and wrote. They, they sort of acted as if Larry and I were their, their you know, um, psychological counselors. <laughs> Question. Is the conclusion from your research basically that if you're a woman who wants a career and a family, you should, be, you should, ha you should have foresight enough to self-select yourself into a job that is less paid and offers flexibility? That's less what? Offers flexibility. Less paid and yeah. offers flexibility as yeah, part well, of the terms and conditions. Uh, yeah, but uh, that, that's a very, very good point, and it leads to what I really want us to think about, which is change and the fact that we can look at many, many professions over the last 30 years and see change in the penalties that you pay for this sort of workplace flexibility. I think that the case of veterinary medicine is a very telling one in that, and, and pharmacy, for example, where, uh, you know, 40 years ago, most Females who are pharmacists either worked for the government or in hospitals or were the part-time person working for 
a man who was uh, the owner-operator of an independent pharmacy. And he made far, far more than she made because he was getting all these rents from being a uh, residual claimant. He was putting in a lot more hours. Now they're both employees working for, you know, Walmart or Costco or, or CVS. So you're absolutely right that I certainly advise my, my male and female students to think about the professions that they're entering, to look around at who's in them and what their lives are like, okay? Uh, as well as lots of other considerations. But we should look at the labor market as, as being dynamic and responding to some degree to individuals. Okay. Yeah. the wisdom of using the number of hours that men work a week as a gold standard because I think that every time that women get out the door whether it be at five o'clock six o'clock or three o'clock it's to go home and partake in their next job which is household duties which is still highly gendered and that men um, are less keen to get out the door because they face that when they go home or they face a partner who's giving out to them that they don't do that when they come home um, and so I wondered would the kind of the crisis that women are facing around childcare um, be, or even what you said about why is an 80-hour litigator worth more than two 40-hour litigators, would it not be answered if we got men out the door at the end of the workday and kind of try to dissolve this atmosphere of the person who works longer works better? There, there's no question that if there was a coordinated action, you know. <laughs> If, if we could somehow engineer men to have babies, the world would be very, a very different place. But if we, if we look at the American data on time use, we do see not only that men spend more time with their kids, but the more highly educated, the more time they spend with their kids. And that's a very interesting uh, finding, okay? And, um, you know, we all know lots of 50-50 couples, but you're absolutely right. It's not there. I certainly don't have, I mean, I have a solution, but it's impractical. So I just gave it to you. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's certainly part, you know, if, if one sat down and, and there are many ways of formally modeling this and I was, I was doing one in which implicit in that production function, that, that's in there, okay? And there are other aspects too, specific human capital, general human capital aspects. Yeah, that's right. Question in the back. Do you have any evidence that would suggest this is not so much about men and women in the workplace, but about those people with kids and those people who don't have kids? I'm thinking of a comment somebody made to me recently, a man, uh, who said, I would like to work less, but I know there's always going to be someone younger and, and hungrier behind me who, who will take my place. Yeah. That's a very, it, it, well, another extremely robust finding in labor economics 
which I'm hoping will go away somehow, is that married men work, make a lot more than single men, and married women make a lot less than single women, where marriage here is equal to has kids, okay? And that is just an extremely robust finding. You're absolutely right. Any other? Should I end? Oh, let me thank you all very, very much for coming and for giving me all your ideas. <laughs>